All right. Hello. Welcome to A Grand Reflection. Uh, this is a podcast where we attempt to dive deep into new ideas in order to understand more about the world and more about ourselves. Um, today's episode is on truth. And uh, to be honest, uh, it's a lot to go over. I <laughs> I uh, recognize that uh, it's not really something that is just going to be solved in one episode. Um it's really interesting. Uh, on the surface, it seems like truth is really cut or dry. And then the more you dive into it, the more complicated it gets and the more confusing it gets. And and to be honest, I, I don't even know if I got really too much further <laughs> as far as it, a definite answer. Um, but uh, I, I do think I have some, I don't know, signposts, maybe that's a way to look at it, um, that might be helpful to us. So um, with that, there is actually a lot of information that I'll be going over in this podcast. So I've created some timestamps in the show notes and uh, you can click on them to kind of jump to whatever part of the podcast you need to whenever you want to. And then I also uh, created sort of a works cited at the bottom so that uh, all these books that I mentioned and things like that, they'll be right down there at the uh, bottom. And then finally, there's also another section, which is additional resources, like things that I didn't even mention, but might be helpful or might be little rabbit trails that you could explore if you like. So yeah, let's get started. All right, truth. (laughs) Um, Here we go. Well, what is truth? How do we find it? Well, uh, we start by um, suggesting an answer to a question or at least by making a statement that we think is correct. And then we continue on by gathering information and taking a look at the data. And then finally, we try to be as objective as possible and use reason in order to come to a conclusion about that data. And maybe uh, if we're being really, really diligent about it, we might even get some peer review to confirm our findings. And uh, that's the core of the scientific method right there. Uh, hypothesis, data collection, conclusion. It's very cut and dry. And it's not just limited to science either. Uh, With philosophy, you do the same sort of thing. You form a hypothesis about some nature of truth or whatever, and then you test it with reason, and then you form a conclusion, and once the process is done, you have a new theory. That also applies to religion. Uh, Form a theological question, search the sacred text, or at least commentary from other scholars, right? And then you form a theological conclusion based off of your reason, and uh, there you go. And this is true uh, for formal fields like this, but it's also true for everything from politics to issues of he said, she said, to whatever in life. This This seems to be the way that we get truth. We form an idea, check the facts, come to a conclusion. So it seems like... uh, that's really cut and dry. There's there's not much to it. Three steps, boom, got to figure it figured out. Truth, done deal, right? Uh, but then, <laughs> if that's the case, then why is it so hard to find truth in the first place? Like why, like why don't people seem to want to listen to reason? And uh, why, if we're in an age of information, is it harder than ever to find truth? So uh, obviously, we need a new way forward. And um, if this method was enough, then I don't think we'd still be arguing so much about everything. I think that we would have some concrete answers. We would have a really good recognition of who right, who's right and who's wrong. 
that goes beyond just opinion. And um, I think that there would be a lot more of a consensus. But that doesn't seem to be the case. So uh, how can we do it differently? Obviously, we need to do something different, but what other way is there? That's a hard question to answer. And I think I've discovered some things that might be helpful for that. But to be honest, they, they got all jumbled together and it got really hard to find a cohesive whole out of it. And so I had to take a break. And I went instead to a book on learning because I figured that might be helpful. Maybe I could find some, some sort of uh, better way to do all this or some sort of way to, to better organize thoughts and, and keep things uh, together. So um, the book that I was uh, reading is called Make It Stick by Peter C. Brown. And in the book, he talks about how the human brain is actually really bad at memorization, um, that uh, we're good sort of shorthand to, uh, to cram, you know, like that, that's like the usual way that we study, right? But um, it only really lasts long enough to take a test, and then all the information just kind of goes out the window. That's the reason why, uh, you know, as kids, we studied super hard to remember all of those dates and names in history class and all of those vocabulary terms and all that sort of stuff. And most of that's completely lost to us now. Uh, so Brown argues instead that it's better to kind of space out your practice and uh, interweave it with other learning and make sure that it's varied as you learn in order to produce a better mastery, a longer retention, and more versatility. So people who learn to extract key ideas from new material and organize them into a mental model and then connect that model to prior knowledge show an advantage in complex mastery. And so that turned out to be really helpful actually, was to, instead of going straight for the conclusion and trying to get all this to connect together, to just kind of lay out the concepts and the models first, and then after that, uh, to circle back and try to reintroduce them together and connect them to each other. And uh, it really helped to get a bigger picture and a better understanding of truth as a whole so as I'm talking about these things, you might start to see some connections between them and uh, ways that they interrelate to each other. Uh, that's actually really good because another part of the, uh, the theory that Brown has on learning is that it's helpful to guess answers. Uh, he says that it's, it's better to try to solve a problem before being taught the solution because that leads to better learning even when you make errors in the attempt. Uh, so... Feel free to do that. Um, I definitely did that. You start to see little bits of connections between the things, but uh, don't worry too much about bringing it to a cohesive whole right off the bat. Um, they will seem a little disjointed, uh, but don't worry, there's gonna be time uh, at the end where we just kind of bring it all together and, uh, and kind of zoom out and see the bigger picture and, and form it into a whole in order to better answer that question of where we find truth. So. That's the idea. Uh, that's that's what we're gonna try to do. Uh, here we go. <laughs> I guess with that, let's get started. So the first thing that I came across is this book by Donald Hoffman called The Case Against Reality. Um, he puts forth this really interesting theory of perception called the interface theory. And he argues that our senses don't actually give us an accurate view of reality, but instead, they work kind of like an advanced computer interface that gives us useful information. So 
imagine if your computer started showing a bunch of ones and zeros all of a sudden on the screen. Um, even if that's actual representation of what's going on in the microchip underneath, uh, it would be really uh, confusing and it wouldn't make any sense. There would be just too much information there to process. He argues that it's the same way with our senses, that there's just too much data there for us to be able to process. And so our senses create shortcuts, uh, much like uh, icons on a computer desktop that link to programs. He argues that it's more that way than the ones and zeros. We don't work like ones and zeros, we work like desktop icons, um, or at least our senses do. And he goes into a lot of detail about how our senses deceive us, uh, everything from uh, our sense of time to our spatial awareness to even just the nature of objects in general. So his argument is that uh, it's easier to um, click on an icon on your desktop than it is to uh, have to build a brand new program every time you want to do something. And his other argument is that when it comes to survival, things need to be speedy. We evolved to survive, so we evolved to be fast, but not necessarily accurate. So the end result is that our senses are useful information, but they're not based on reality. They're just based on what's convenient um, and what's consistent. So, so what that means is our measurements and observations are just a rough shorthand for reality rather than accurate indicators of what's actually out there. And there's some good evidence for this that we already know about. Um, for instance, there's the um, double slit experiment, um, and that has to do with uh, recognizing that when we observe something, it actually changes the thing. So there's no such thing as a neutral observer, uh, and that gets into all sorts of interesting problems. That's where that's where Schrodinger's cat comes from, and that's where you get all sorts of weirdness of uh, quantum computing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's probably something that I'll go to, back to at a later time, but, but for now I think that, that that's good. The main point is uh, reality isn't as cut and dry as we think it is, and even our measurements aren't as cut and dry as we think they are. So uh, shifting gears, uh, my, the next thing that I, I kind of explored, uh, I kind of got on a survival kick from that, kind of thinking like what, uh, what sort of things does our, does our brain do uh, in order to survive, and I came across the default mode network. Uh, and that is a group of neurons, or, or sorry, groups of groups of neurons, I guess, uh, a bunch of systems in the brain that interact with each other. Um, but they actually, they interact with each other when we're seemingly doing nothing, because as it turns out, we are never doing nothing. Our brain is always working. So uh, the default mode network is what gets activated when uh, when you're daydreaming or when you're ruminating, um, when you're like a thousand miles away, like you're doing boring work and you're just like off in la-la land. Um, but it's interesting because uh, the key brain systems that it uses uh, are ones that uh, involve the sense of self. And, uh, and that's in two ways. Uh, the sense of self in relation to time. It's like future self, past self, current self and then uh, the self in relation to others. So like, uh, you know, going over old conversations or conversations that you might have later or, or whatever. And um, 
that is kind of why uh, when uh, we're mind wandering, it's so easy to get stuck in in the past or in the future or stuck with uh, stuck in interactions with others because this brain network is going. And um, it has a really specific reason for doing this, which is survival. Uh, it is constantly on the lookout for if there's anything dangerous, anything that's a threat to ourselves. Um, anything that it needs to, uh, it's kind of a watchdog mode. It's like uh, if, if it's looking out, if there's something that, uh, you know, like a lion off in the bushes, bushes or whatever, uh, it, it'll alert the the adrenaline to kick in and get us to run or whatever, the, the fight or flight kind of stuff. Um, and so it's always alert and it's always just kind of checking in to make sure we're going to be safe. And as it's doing that, uh, the sense of self is is good to have. It's good to have a strong sense of self so that um, your body has a good sense of what it is it's actually protecting. You know, So your brain knows... Like, this is the self, this is the me that I need to keep safe. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. The default mode network is implicated in a lot of different disorders, uh, everything from uh, big, heavy mental disorders like schizophrenia to um, more common things like uh, anxiety and depression. But the really interesting thing is it's shut down very clearly when we do something like meditate, which is probably why... Um, when you meditate, there's like that sense of oneness uh, because there's uh, no more sense of self in relation to others. And then uh, there's also that sense of being in the present moment because there's no longer this sense of self through time. So yeah, there's there's definite ways that it can be shut off, but there's also different ways that it gets turned on as well. A lot of times how this happens is it's when we're not actively involved in um, a task that requires brain power. Uh, so that would be stuff like watching TV or scrolling social media. Um, all those times when, uh, when we're bored, uh, is when the default mode network kicks in. So, um, the cool thing though, is there's something else that shows up exactly when the default mode network isn't active and that's called the task positive network. And that sounds a little, uh, weird wording, but, uh, there's a more common name for it, which is the flow state. And uh, we're all familiar with the flow state. You know, uh, that's when uh, when you're in the present moment and you're not thinking about yourself, you're not worrying, you're just enjoying what's right in front of you. Uh, you have some goal or task that's maybe slightly challenging, but not overly challenging, just enough that you got to have full focus, but you feel really confident that you can do it. Um, and there's kind of that, that's, that state of uh, maximum creativity and new solutions are being found. Uh, that's all the task positive network. So when we're in this flow state, it's uh, it's it's in a state that's not so interested in surviving anymore. It's more interested in thriving. It's interested in uh, creating an excess out of this sense of safety and abundance. And so, so the really interesting thing is the task positive network and the default mode network, they never really um, tend to activate at the same time. They're always in... Uh, opposition to each other. When one increases, the other is always decreasing. And so either you're in default mode or you're in task positive mode. And then uh, moving on, the next thing that I uh, was looking at is this um, science of the left brain and the right brain. And uh, this is something that, uh, I, I mean, I grew up with, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you guys did, did too, this this idea of the left and the right brain, and there's the, the left brain that's all uh, logic and mathematics, and uh, the right brain that's all creativity and imagination. 
This is sort of kind of true, but it's really uh, a lot more nuanced than that. Uh, in the book, The Master and His Emissary, Ian McGillcrest uh, researches the left and the right brain, and he gives this really well-nuanced view of how they work differently. Um, he says that it's not so much about what tasks each one of them is doing, uh, because they're both kind of involved in everything in our day-to-day -day life. There's not, there's not really any times where it's just like one activating the other not. But uh, what it's more about is how they each approach the tasks. So there's, there's this kind of structured laser-like focus on the left, and then there's this uh, open, um, kind of broad, fuzzy, bigger picture kind of thinking on the right. And then uh, on the left is like uh, the, the well-established and the known, and then on the right is the, the new and the novel and the uh, unseen. Right, so the left takes a bottom-up approach where it's um, it starts with the very specific, and then tries to build that into a uh, a detailed picture of the world. But the right um, takes a top-down approach, starting with the vague and the undefined. It uses um, sort of a fuzzy picture of the whole, kind of this intuitive view, and then um, slowly brings the whole picture into focus. And so because of that, the left brain is interested in definitions and the right brain is interested in connections. And, and it's really interesting because uh, McGillcrest tracks this throughout history, showing um, on the one hand uh, these periods where the right brain is really dominant uh, with the ancient Greeks and uh, with the Renaissance and the Romantic era, all these times where... Uh, the unknown and the transcendent prevailed, and uh, there were all these new ways of being and new ways of thinking and this new societal structure. Um, there was a lot of kind of thinking outside the box and bringing new things uh, into the world. And then on the other hand, there's these other periods that are very left brain dominant, uh, ancient Rome, the Enlightenment, the Protestant Reformation, and uh, even the modern era. They, they each have more of an emphasis on structure and power and the need to either make known or to conquer. Uh, and the reason for that is the left brain is really interested in control. It's really interested in having a perfect grasp on things. Um, it, it's where the ego is, so it really um, grabs for power. Uh, yeah, so it's really interesting because he argues that because of this closed thinking of the left brain where it thinks that it's the best and it's, it thinks that its way is the only way, um, it tries to grab power from the right hemisphere. But the right brain, uh, it sees the bigger picture. And, and so even with that, it, it sees the value of the left brain and uh, it kind of holds, uh, holds both. And so what happens is the left hemisphere grabs for more power from the right and the right doesn't do the same. And so the further you go down uh, throughout history as this broad kind of consciousness uh, that's moving in the human race, uh, it gets more and more of a left brain dominance as time goes on. And there's more and more of a, uh, a valuing of data and abstraction and more and more of an undervaluing of people in the world. So that's where we find ourselves today. That's great. Um, but uh, speaking of human consciousness through time, that actually gets me to 
the uh, next thing, which is integral theory. Uh, and there's this guy named Ken Wilber who came up with this theory. Um, it's a theory of human consciousness uh, from the dawn of man to the modern day uh, and beyond, actually, um, and, and how consciousness sort of evolves. And, and it can be applied to individuals, uh, but he especially applies it to societal consciousness as a whole. And so what it is, is there's the first stage, which is the archaic. And um, you could look at it like a, like a infants would be in this stage. And the idea is there's no self-consciousness. There's total oneness. Uh, there's not a sense of self yet. And there's not a sense of uh, time yet. And so uh, in a societal terms, this is like uh, a sense of being one with the world. And in individual terms, this is like being one with the mother. And then uh, after that, you progress to the magical stage where there's some sense of self-developed, but it's still very permeable and there's a strong sense of wonder and mysticism. So for individual children, this would be, well, okay, sorry. For individuals, this would be children. And uh, they have this uh, still kind of an attachment to their mother or, and to their father and maybe to other family members. Uh, they're dependent and they're... Uh, they're not a, a separate self exactly, but there is a certain sense of, of, of who they are compared to others. Um, and then that progresses to the mythical, and that's where structures are formed from narratives, such as the origin of the gods and of the heroes. On an individual sense, this would be more like uh, when you start to form a view of the world, uh, you know, you start to uh, recognize what your beliefs are and uh, find your grounding, what you believe is the best thing, you know, a moral compass, that kind of stuff. Um, but again, for, for the world, it's the mythical, which uh, involves, you know, religions and, and all that sort of stuff. And then finally, it gives way to the mental stage, which is where everything is seemingly explained and accounted for. And the mental stage uh, would be like full adulthood, uh, if it's the individual, but the mental stage for society as a whole is... Uh, basically where we find ourselves today. Um, and then he talks about this new stage uh, that comes after the mental stage that we really haven't quite reached yet as a whole, and that's called the integrative stage. Um, but Wilbur, he argues that each stage has to play itself out before uh, the next stage can come. It has to kind of go full swing into that consciousness, and then that still has to fall short so that it can be bumped up to the next stage. But that kind of continues all the way until the integral stage, the one that we haven't reached yet, which involves no longer discarding those previous stages, but instead uh, reintegrating them into a bigger whole, like pieces of a puzzle. But until that happens, uh, we're kind of firmly rooted in the known and the seen and away from the magical and the enchanted. So um, that leads me to... The uh, next sort of thing that I discovered, which uh, has to do with a philosopher named Charles Taylor. He wrote a book called The Secular World. Now, I didn't read that book because it's crazy long, so I, I admit it, I didn't read it, but but there is a shorter one called How to Be Secular by James K. Smith, and in he summarizes Taylor's views into a, something that's a lot more digestible and easy to swallow. So uh, the idea is that mankind has progressively lost a sense of the enchanted and the transcendent. Um, he talks about this buffered self. Uh, there, there's this um, uh, 
There's this idea of a self that's separate from the world rather than being porous and present in the world. And what he means by this is that buffered people primarily influence the world rather than the world influencing them. It's no longer about this relationship to the self in the world, but it's more about mastery over the world. Uh, he marks the scientific revolution and the Protestant Reformation as uh, parallel rather than opposing forces. His argument is that they, um, they both deal with flattening the transcendent ideals of the Renaissance. So rather than this uh, big explosion of new ideas and thinking outside the box and uh, crazy invention and discovery, uh, they're more uh, the Protestant Reformation and the Scientific Revolution are both, they're both marked by this new focus on the concrete and the measurable. For the Scientific Revolution, there's an ever-increasing exactness in scientific devices. And as far as religion goes, there's an increasing adherence to God-given rules and specific wording. So... Um, it all became about what the self could do rather than how the self could be changed. So he argues that this loss of enchantment is exactly what led to the crisis of meaning in postmodernism. Um, this ever-shrinking sense of self and what it's identified to. So first the self was uh, identified with the world, and then uh, that became anthropocentric and the self was identified with human beings. And then that became ethnocentric, where it was defined by your ethnicity or your culture. And then finally, uh, it went down to community and then to the family. And then uh, where we find ourselves now, which is down to the individual. And that loss is a hole that we've been desperately trying to fill since. He argues that it explains our ever-increasing need of entertainment and stimulation, as well as our ever-increasing sense of loneliness and isolation. I noticed a little bit of crossover here with a book that I read years ago called uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl argued that, um, that as long as you have an adequate meaning for your life, you can withstand any sort of suffering or punishment. And it seems like to, to connect it with Taylor's ideas is, is that we have a crisis of meaning because we've uh, protected ourselves through this buffer, um, that we've made ourselves separate from the world and we've made ourselves little islands uh, by ourselves and that our lives are devoid of the transcendent that goes beyond that, that um, we have a loss of meaning because we're no longer porous. But... Um, Going on to the next thing, uh, and speaking of the age of information and our need to have constant entertainment and stimulation, uh, this brings us to the last thing that I kind of looked up, which was uh, how we gain wisdom. And I got this from an interesting article written by Maria Popova, who does this really great blog called Brain Pickings. Um, it's a really cool, uh, just kind of hodgepodge of all sorts of uh really good wisdom from the past and she hyperlinks them together so you can just get totally lost down these rabbit trails but anyway uh i found this in one of those articles uh i'll try to link it at the end if i can find it hopefully <laughs> but um she shows uh the path of wisdom as being a ladder that you have to climb up and, and there's specific steps that you need to take to get there she argues that the um that the information gathering is just the first part of the process and then after you gather all the data you sort it out into facts. 
And even that, though, is still just a form of information. And then that, is, so those facts need to be sorted out too. And um, once you form those into an integrated whole, that information becomes knowledge. And it's only when you do that that you finally arrive at truth. And um, truth, if applied properly to our lives, becomes wisdom. So that, that's kind of the idea. Um, there's not much more to it. That was a simple one. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, six different models that we can interlink with each other. And so now's the fun part to uh, look at them all together and see how they connect. Okay, so let's breathe. Um, I know that was a lot to take in, but don't worry, there's not gonna be a test or anything. Um, if you like, this is a really good spot to uh, pause and you can just come back to it in a minute. But if you're ready to keep going, uh, let's check it out. Uh, the first thing that's jumping out to me, it seems like uh, there's this story that we have for modern society that we've uh, advanced beyond um, these older systems and we've discarded them for something better, that, uh, that we have a better grasp of truth now, we're not so naive, and um, that we have a real understanding of what's there. But uh, after looking at all these models, it kind of seems like it's actually the opposite. It seems like, uh, like according to integral theory, uh, as time goes on, we're getting further and further from the source rather than closer and closer. And then um, when we combine that with Charles Taylor, it seems that our secularization uh, has flattened out our viewpoint and created a buffered self to make us feel safe, uh, which is inherently making us have a limited view um, uh, making us unable to see like uh, the spiritual and the transcendent. So um, that puts us uh, right here in the postmodern world where we're fragmented into ever more personal and ever more isolated and ever more further away from unity and with each other. Um, and this makes sense too if we look at the master and his emissary. Uh, it can be explained through a left brain grab for dominance where it thinks it knows everything, but it actually has a really limited view and a really focused in view, and it can't expand to see the whole picture. So, um, and again, that's because the left brain carries the ego and it only sees things in term of, terms of utility uh, for the self. So it, it can't see the ways that there are bigger things and unknown things. And we can't even really argue that it's a good trade-off either uh, because the case against reality shows us that we're not even near as objective as we think we are. And no matter how hard we try at it, we still don't get an accurate view of reality. Um, but uh, then again, that's simply because of survival. And because of our modern world and all of our constant stimulation, uh, or at least stimulation without a specific task, uh, we got the default mode network, which also acts on survival instincts. So the survival instincts are kicked into overdrive. And the horrible irony here is that the more we're obsessed with being right about something, the more the left brain and the default mode network activate to defend a sense of self, and the less we're able to find truth because we become more and more uh, focused on ourselves and more and more convinced that we're right. And then along with that, uh, it's even worse because not only are we more, in one sense, more sure of ourselves, but we're also more afraid of losing that sense of self that the left brain sees as static. And uh, it means that even though we're in a heightened sense of black and white thinking, 
um, we're also in an age of a lowered sense of truth. There's this ever-increasing want for the objective and the measurable over the enchanted and the imaginary, and it's leading to less and less understanding and less and less grounding. So we become even less objective and more afraid of new ideas and more afraid of a loss of sense of self, or at least a static sense of self, like how the left brain sees it. And the left brain tries to fix this by desperately grabbing more information in order to kill the uncertainty. And um, the excess of information uh, activates the default mode network, which makes us even more anxious. And then we're caught in this feedback loop of information and can't progress up the ladder of truth, let alone get ourselves into wisdom and figure out what to do in response to all of it. So so there we are. Um, geez. And, and our, society, our society doesn't help us either. Uh, there's all these structures that are in place that are, are very abstracted. You know, we have money and it it doesn't actually, you know, it's just a number. It doesn't represent a real world good. I mean, it can, but it re it, re it represents everything and nothing all at the same time. And then uh, we have a, sort of this obsession um, with ratings and statistics, at least as far as businesses go, um, or even countries, you know. Uh, there's this uh, further data overload that happens because we're just so obsessed with the numbers. And then um, it happens on a personal level too. There's this obsession uh, on social media with quantities, right? Like, like the number of likes always supersedes the depth of engagement. Like it doesn't matter if, if one person responded with a really well thought out uh, response um, or, or at least it doesn't matter as much as if there's like 50 people that saw it, you know, 50 people that loved it, right? So uh, it's weird because we get we get obsessed with all these numbers and we get obsessed with all these moments and these constant updates. And meanwhile, most of the threats to our existence aren't even the type of things that the default mode network and the left brain know how to process. Uh, they're existential threats that go beyond the sense of self, such as like uh, coronavirus, uh, global warming, you know, deep societal change in general. You know, like uh, Black Lives Matter uh, or, you know, whatever side you're on. I'm not going to try to <laughs> sway you to one side, you know, uh, police life matters. Whatever, whatever it is that uh, that we feel like needs to be rebalanced, um, it's hard to focus on those things when we're focused in the moment. And uh, those sort of things, those sort of bigger overarching things don't really get much noticed by the left brain and are kind of ignored for the sake of moment-to-moment -moment issues that uh, often don't matter in the long run. So I, I guess the real question is like, where's the hope in this? Because that seems really kind of, because that seems really sucky. So uh, the first little bit of hope that uh, that I want to recognize is that Ken Wilber says that once you reach the integral state of consciousness, you begin to integrate all the previous levels of consciousness with each other. So so you begin to see the knowledge and the ways of being from the past not as um, false or naive, but simply as part of a bigger picture. Or to put it in terms of the master and his emissary, the integrative stage of consciousness involves giving control back to the right brain, who can better uh, lead because it can better both take its own views and the views of the left brain and integrate them together. Uh, in fact, that's why the book is called The Master and His Emissary in the first place. Uh, the left brain makes a great servant but a poor master, and harmony is only achieved when the right brain takes its rightful place as leader. Um, there's kind of this thing in the book where he talks about uh, this patterning where 
uh, something will come to consciousness in the right brain, kind of intuitive, subconscious, uh, and then it'll shift it into the left brain uh, to get it kind of to work on it and to process it through. And then the process isn't complete until uh, all that information is reintegrated into the right brain. So it starts and it ends with the right brain, and the left brain is uh, kind of there as, uh, yeah, as a servant. So some other good news uh, revolving around the master and his emissary is Ian McGilchrist talks about this uh, really cool way where uh, eventually the left brain's own logic systems sort of uh, create this self-defeating thing where um, it starts to see the logic that the right brain has to be in control and eventually um, it will give it up. It's just, it takes a few cycles. It takes uh, the long arc of history uh, before that process um, happens on a deeper level rather than a temporary one. So, so there is a certain sense of inevitability there. But in the meantime, the left brain's bottom-up approach uh, leaves all these gaps and misconceptions because it doesn't like not having answers. It doesn't like sustaining attention in order to find something new. And instead, it tries to make things as small and as manageable as possible so that everything can be solved and in its place. And it wants numbers to line up, and it wants for there to be uh, kind of this one unifying answer to everything. But the right brain, uh, it thrives on the unknown and the unspoken, and uh, it finds truth in the spirit of exploration. So it, it gets this bigger picture thinking that eliminates the fear of new ideas coming from the default mode network. And because of that, it kickstarts the creative process of a flow state, which uses the whole brain, including the left. And the creative process finds new and unexpected solutions that challenge the idea of a static self. So it, basically what it does is uh, the right-brained thinking removes the buffer uh, that we've placed on ourselves and allows us to be porous again. Um, because the right brain, because the right brain understands that there's a relationship between truth and the self, and uh, we cannot escape interaction with truth without becoming changed, because we're not buffered. Uh, that's just an illusion. The world is enchanted, and we co-create as it creates us. So the right brain knows that this reinvention of the self isn't death. Uh, the left brain, on the other hand. Uh, gets really afraid during this process because it only sees the self as static and it, it sees the self as unchanging. So um, instead, though, it, it is this dynamic unfolding. It's this continual motion. So the right brain knows that letting go of fear of the unknown and exploring with trust and hope uh, actually leads to becoming more than who you were before. And it sees this really big picture um, that the individual is connected to the collective. It recognizes that taking part in this process isn't just a thing that grows the individual, but it actually grows all of humankind. Um, and according to integral theory, uh, that growth of humankind is inevitable anyway. Um, in fact, according to uh, the master and his emissary, that growth of humankind is inevitable anyway. So uh, there's not really a true risk of failure taking part. It's more just uh, stepping into the dance that's already happening. Um, any moment of failure is, is more just another path to dance on. So uh, circling back to Make It Stick for a moment, uh, the book that was about learning, 
Uh, Peter C. Brown states in it that failure underlies the scientific method, which has advanced our understanding of the world we inhabit. The qualities of persistence and resiliency, where failure is seen as useful information, underlie successful innovation in every sphere and lie at the core of nearly all successful learning. Failure points to the need for redoubled effort or liberates us to try different approaches. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's more what science and religion and philosophy were always about at their core anyway. Um, if you look back to... Um, to you know like uh the renaissance like the renaissance man there's there's a blurred line between uh science endeavors and religion endeavors and philosophy endeavors it's all uh it's all the same because it's all about diving deep into the depths of uh the mystery of existence with confidence and um finding answers that lead to more questions and more awe and more exploration uh, it's this positive feedback loop so that's pretty cool, but there's still this problem, the trouble with reality, right? Um, that whole thing of how we can't get an objective viewpoint. If there's a failure of our supposed objectivity, what's our new approach? Because we can't, we can't truly know how much of our left brain is deceiving us and making us think that we know everything when we actually don't. And um, it's always going to be doing that to a certain extent. It's always going to be making us think that we know everything. Uh, but but I think that we can still instill such learning and imagination that, that uh, we can witness truth unfolding before us. Because I think that that's where truth is found. It's found from exploring the bigger things and then going into detail, from recognizing the unknown and jumping into it. And then... Uh, mapping it so that we can know where to go next um so that we can know what to come back to and what to look at again and see how it's all changed uh, because in reality nothing's static and all of it is part of the dance and all of it is unfolding all at the same time and it's all much too big to understand in one go uh, isaac newton has this really good quote that is uh, to myself i am only a child playing on the beach while vast oceans of truth lie undiscovered before me. And I think that's a really good approach, uh, taking it as a child would. That's a really good place to start, like allowing that childlike wonder to open back up. Like when, when you're with a child, they're always like asking, but why, but why, but why? You know, like, like, why is the sky blue? Well, because it's particles that refract off of the, well, why do particles do that? Well, because particles are, you know, just shut up already, right? <laughs> but th that's a good approach to have it, isn't it? Like for a child, uh, nothing's taken for granted. It's, it's, it's all explored all the time. Uh, it reminds me of the last episode where I talked about uh, the Iron Giant. The main character, Hogarth, he's just constantly exploring, constantly his, imagin his imagination's running wild, and um, he insists on wonder and exploration uh, rather than fear and comfort and what's comfortable. And because of that, he finds truth where others are blind and afraid. And, and sometimes exploration like that can seem random just like that episode was. Uh, but when we keep looking, it turns out that all these things connect and nothing's really random after all. But those connections aren't really something that we discover if we stick to what's safe and what's known and what's quantifiable. It, it does kind of take a little bit of letting go and it takes a lot of trust that what's out there is actually good. 
Uh, but the wonderful thing is, um, every time we do reach out past the light of our current understanding, we become a little bit more bold and a little bit more well-traveled, and the world continues to become more connected and more wonderful. So the real question is, what do we do about it? Um, well, I think we can uh, start by keeping these models in mind beyond this podcast and choose to apply them to whatever's going on in our lives. And another way we can do it is to step away from the constant input so that our right brain can regain the big picture. Um, that's to say we can give time for our minds to climb up the ladder of wisdom. And we can also create little goals or conundrums to solve so that our default mode network gets shut off and the task positive flow state gets activated. Uh, we can choose to nurture wonder and imagination over information and data. We can revisit old ideas and integrate them with new ones. Uh, we can also decide not to assume that we have all the answers and to instead seek as much as we can to play devil's advocate. Uh, but most of all, I think that what it takes is learning the value of having the right questions rather than the value of having the right answers. Yeah, it, it starts with living the questions and being okay with the unknown. So I want to model a lot of that with the podcast itself. And one way to do that is to connect to these Comet Trail episodes and allow them to happen. Um, already that turned out great with the Iron Giant one. But uh, I think uh, as a general thing, um, if we're truly trusting that connections and understanding can be found anywhere, then random isn't really random. And uh, passion to explore is a greater driver towards truth than finding a topic that seems to already have the proper place in everything. So uh, I want to allow for things to be wrong sometimes. And I fully expect that I probably already said things that were wrong and we're going to have to circle back to them and uh, create at least some clarification or maybe even debunk it totally and say that we were wrong. Um, but either way, uh, I think that there's probably going to be some tweaking later on and that's okay. Um, I think that the podcast is more about, uh, I have this image of spiraling upward rather than a linear progression. Uh, there's a circling back in one sense, but it's even though it's going back to the same point, it's you're, you're not at the same point anymore. You, you've kind of moved upwards. Uh, so that's kind of the imagery that I want to keep with it. And um, I really do hope to rely on a little bit more of a right brain top down approach where I'll find things that I intuitively sense uh, have a connection and are connected to a question. And then uh, sort of flesh them out until the question is closer to having an answer um, that I'll, I'll, I'll sort of see how they connect to each other by the time I'm done. Uh, a, a lot like how I did this episode where I just kind of lay out a few things that I really think should be there um, but I don't quite know why yet and then uh, by the end they'll form a cohesive whole. And obviously that does take a little bit of trusting that that'll happen and there will be a cohesive whole. But the cool part is, is that's the work on my part and not yours. So if they don't connect, then uh, it won't be an episode. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, and uh, finally, the last thing I want to do is uh, really allow for experimentation. Um, I want to be able to constantly rethink what this podcast is and what it can be. So if you have any ideas for that, uh, feel free to uh, contact me. My email is aaron at agrandreflection.com. 
And feel free to send me an email for uh, anything you'd like to explore, any new ideas uh, or uh, expansions on ideas that we already have. any questions, those questions can be related to something that maybe needs clarification that I already went over, or it could be just a random question that that came up in your mind that you think would be cool to cover. Uh, It can really be anything. I think that that's the beauty of this. Uh, I have a couple more episodes of sort of foundational stuff, Um, but other than that, it's it's kind of free reign. It's, It's whatever ends up coming to the surface is what we'll go over. And I'm kind of excited for that because it means that there's no set destination. There's no uh, thing that we're trying to solve. It's it's all exploration. And uh, so with that, I do have a, a couple more episodes that are already planned. Um, and the next episode is going to be about love and relationship and community. So stay tuned for that one. Um, it ought to be a little bit more <laughs> uh, lighthearted, a little bit less... Uh, a little less mentally dense than this one. But uh, for today, I think we're good to just let it all sit for a while. So reflect on it and let it reflect off you. And in the meantime, may your wonder and imagination soar and may we dance together in this ever upward spiral. Thanks.